Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. In this much longer episode than normal, I speak to Matei Zatrianu of System2. As a provider of alternative data analysis advice to hedge funds and corporate clients, Matei sits in the privileged position of being able to explore and seek value in a vast array of alternative data sets. In our conversation, we talk about surviving Lehman Brothers, monthly beers with the early alt data community in New York, using external data to help corporates capture maximum revenues, how to choose the right alternative data set, and the ongoing poker game that is the financial markets. I hope you enjoy the program. So today I'm joined by Matei Zatrianu of uh, System2. Um, Matei, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Indeed. Uh, Matei, I think you're going to be particularly interesting. All my guests are interesting, but I think you're going to be particularly interesting because you have a really good overview of, of uh, alternative data as a space and, and the, the difficulties and, and joys to be had with using it. And so I'm really looking forward to to talking to you about that in general. But but let's begin, if we can, just by, by setting the scene a little bit by talking about um, about you and, and your background and how you came into the alternative data space. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my background was relatively typical on the finance side. I started in investment banking at Lehman Brothers, and that lasted you know until they, they filed for bankruptcy, at which point I ended up joining a hedge fund called King Street, how many months was it at Lehman? It was, it was about a year. It was about a year. Yeah. So I started in 2007 and the, the group that I worked on was the, the Esoteric Asset-Backed Securitization Group, which is a mouthful. And it's also one of the, the main, it was all part of that structure of credits. Exactly. So one of the good things that, that happened uh, despite all the, the chaos was we were one of the first groups to be let go. And in hindsight, that was actually a blessing because we were able to land jobs. So we were let go at the beginning of the summer and Lehman filed for bankruptcy in, uh, in that fall. So we were able to spend that summer looking for jobs and um, then yeah, end up at this hedge fund. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy ride. I mean, it was uh, it, it shows the first thing it was my first real job. And you walk into these uh, these massive buildings. They have all this history, all this all this marble and uh, you never even imagined something like that can crumble. And there we were just a few short months afterwards where the majority of the, the senior staff were frankly in denial. They're like, Oh, just wait until, you know, wait until the new year happens. Cause everyone's things are slow right now because everyone's on vacation, but everything's going to pick back up once the, the new year starts. And sure enough, like nothing ended up happening. And it was just all this, uh, this inevitable downward spiral but it yeah, definitely taught us, at least some of the, the junior folks, just how, how easily all these massive institutions can, can crumble in, in a heartbeat. It's interesting. It's, I think it's Hemingway who says, like, the, the interesting thing about war is that in wartime, you actually really get to learn all the lessons that usually it takes a lifetime to learn about what people are like and, and how the system really works. I imagine, was it like that with Lehman? Could, were, were you able to see on the inside, what the what a giant institution going down looks like? Could you learn? Did did you get insight into how the system works from it? You think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was look. I mean, there was. I was fresh out of college, so it's not like I had all this life experience that to really 
if I had been working there a little bit longer, I feel like I would have learned even more. But for someone in that junior of a position, the biggest lesson was just a just how easily things like these massive complex organizations can crumble. But also, it was a really interesting insight into people and how people react in these kind of warlike environments. And yeah. and some people, yeah, some people are in complete denial. It's like, oh, nothing's happening. Everything's totally fine. Just wait until the next year. Other people, I remember the the managing director of our group ended up retiring in the, the winter of 2007. And he had been there for many, many years. So he was able to like cash out at the peak. He inevitably probably saw things coming, or maybe it was just, who knows what, what was going through his mind, but he ended up cashing out at the, the very peak. And then he had a lot of other people within the organization that were in complete denial of what was inevitably going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely interesting. It was also interesting. Another interesting takeaway was around work and what it means to be to, to join these like fast paced, like hardworking institutions where the, you know, the cliches like you're a banker, you're going to work extremely long hours. And obviously there was like pay historically associated with, with those hours. But to me, the interesting point there was that we were still working a lot. But for like no reason, like no deals were getting done. I mean, we had some of these things in the pipeline. It was more just like, oh, let's keep ourselves busy because we're, again, in this denial phase where we think things are going to recover. Let's keep working on these PowerPoint presentations because, yeah, like once spring comes, everything's going to kick back up in gear. And sure enough, it just end up crumbling. So it's like the car has crashed, but the wheel, the engine's still going and the wheel, wheels are still <laughs> turning incredibly fast. Exactly. Um, but Anyway, uh, fascinating stuff about Lehman. I always, I always like talking about it. But um, let's move on. So you joined a hedge fund out of that. That's right. Yep. I joined a hedge fund called King Street. Uh, they were at the time that I joined about $16 billion. I think they peaked at around like $22 billion based out of New York. And in my, my role, like my academic background was in math and stats. And when I, I joined King Street, my work was to essentially be a quant in an otherwise very fundamental shop. So I was working on everything from, in the beginning, I covered a lot of structured credit products because King Street ended up buying a lot of the, the products that in my former role at, at Lehman, we were securitizing because it was, and we don't need to get into all the details of this, but the, the short story there is that these assets were extremely complex, but then they were rated by these rating agencies as like AAA paper. So investors yeah. who had really no idea of what the actual assets were, were buying it just because of that rating. So when the, the crisis happened, the, the prices on a lot of this paper just dropped to like pennies on the dollar. And funds like King Street and others realized that there is actually value there if you bother to, to take some time and understand what those assets are, how the correlations work, how to model them properly. And so we end up picking up a lot of this paper, like literally pennies on the dollar, like from like nine to like 20 cents on the dollar. And a lot of that ended up recovering close to the par a couple of years later. So my, yeah, my role was, uh, I was getting pulled in all sorts of different directions, was modeling a lot of this structured credit paper that we were looking to buy. I was getting, um, I was involved in a lot of the, like the, the broader portfolio models, like risk models, and then just more broad, like anything that was a little bit more quantitative. We were involved in all sorts of sovereign bankruptcies that had all sorts of relatively complex payment terms and foreign currency components that needed to be accounted for. And so, yes, I was kind of a jack of all trades. I would get brought in to to help all sorts of different folks on the the investment team that were working on different kinds of uh, more exotic trades. Okay. And were you... um... Were you uh, manipulating data in ways that would come to be useful now, or was this a different kind of crunching? 
Well, that, that's a that's a great great question because there are there were a lot of lessons from. So just kind of fast forward to today. I mean, I spend my my entire life now working with data, but there were there were a lot of of foreshadowing going on back then as well, where the data set. So even the stuff that I mentioned, the structure credit paper that we were looking at. To give a little bit more context around or more detail, these were portfolios of typically like hundreds of, of corporates that had issued either, let's just say like bonds or like, you know, some sort of like CDS contracts that we were then, that banks like Lehman had pooled together and into these um, aggregated portfolios. And so you had a decent amount of data. I mean, you had, instead of just analyzing one stock or a couple of stocks, you had these portfolios that constituted like hundreds of them. And each one of these companies had different tiers in their capital structure that may have been included in this uh, in these aggregated portfolios. And so there was a, a lot of data for, for back then. And that was one of the, the reasons, like one of the things that we pride ourselves on is to be able to actually model and go into detail on each one of these companies that made up the the larger structured credit portfolios and versus others that were just looking at it from a top-down perspective that would look at things like you know just geographic concentrations or sector concentrations but they didn't have the the technology or just the, the desire really to go in depth into every one of those companies so a lot of it yeah like a lot of it even back then was analyzing relatively large data sets and, and look and in finance in general like Data has been large for a long time. Companies like Bloomberg have made a massive business out of consolidating all this data and creating models on top of it and making it easy for people to consume all this information. So when it comes to pricing data, like volume data, there's been a lot of it. And we were working with, with a bunch of that as well. But the, the main shift for me happened when this data turned to what what became known as alternative data where it wasn't just your typical you know pricing and, and volumes and, and credit spreads and it was something much more much more idiosyncratic much more specific to the actual companies that we were looking to analyze okay and when are you when are you when do you see that change happening yeah so well for for me this happened in it was around 2013, 2014, where I remember actually one of the first conferences that I, I attended around this topic was the, the Raven Pack conference. Raven Pack is this, um, they've been around for, for a while. They do news analytics. So they, they ingest a lot of news data and they calculate sentiment. They calculate all sorts of different, they try to be quantitative in the analysis of otherwise very qualitative news content. And they had a conference in New York and this, had, this I think was their first conference, at least in New York. And this must've been around 20, maybe 2012, 2013, something like that, where I got introduced to, to this concept of, Oh, there's a lot more that we can do with, with data to use for investment purposes. And uh, that, that opened up the, the doors to having a bunch of other conversations. And ultimately, I mean, this was, Back in the day where we had, there weren't alternative data teams at funds. I remember um, we had, we started getting wind of all some of the stuff that, that was happening. There was credit card data that was being being used by by some companies, but again, it was very, very uh, sparsely used in the investment world, especially not on the, the fixed, fixed income side, hedge funds like like King Street. And uh, I remember I was, I was asking, I was trying to, to learn more about it. And I was asking our head of IR to put me in touch with like other people that he knew within the industry that may know about any of these topics. I was just trying to pull on all sorts of strengths to see whether we can, we can find other funds that are starting to think about these. And it, the short answer was like, not really. There were very few funds that were starting to look at some of these um, 
alternative data sets, but we slowly but surely end up finding each other. So we started getting together with um, with folks from places like Two Sigma, from places like there was a, a bunch of these like quant shops. But there were some other non-quant shops as well that were part of these uh, of this initial group. And it was literally a handful of us grabbing drinks once a month and talking about some of these alternative data sets. If you think about those faces now, are they are they now the big wigs in the in the alternative data sector? Or have a lot of them gone off to do other things? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So, I, yes, a lot of them are still the, the the front runners in that space. I mean, there are people from places like Point Seventy Two that has done a fantastic job, in my opinion, working with these alternative data sets. Having said that, there were there was still a lot of turnover. Some of the initial people that I was in conversations with. Are are no longer there. So I mean, we were talking to, um, to to folks like like Gene Exter who worked at, at Point Seventy Two, and then he ended up moving on to something else. We I had you know friends with uh, his another person named uh, Michael Reche who was also at, at Point Seventy Two who took over sort of like took over from from Gene and then moved on to he's now at at, uh, at Newberger. So the there's been a decent amount of movement in the space where people that were starting to get involved in some funds end up moving in other places. But by and large, I think the, the reality is that there has been interest from these early adopters and that interest translated into various levels of success. I mean, look, not, not everything worked um, as probably as imagined. So for example, you know, places like Citadel have had a significant effort and they had, they'd hired a ton of people back in the, the early days and you know, like those initiatives are no longer as large as they as they once were. And we can definitely get into how the space has changed. I think it's very interesting. But yeah, like, but there was there was definitely a lot of excitement, and um, and it's just like anything else that's innovative, right? You're going to have a lot of companies, a lot of people trying it. Most of them are quite frankly not going to be successful because you are talking about more of a VC style of an investment where, you know, you want to create a large portfolio, you're going to have a handful of home runs, but then you're going to have a lot of other, you know, more middle of the road successes and then a, a lot of failures as well. Sure. Okay. Um, so you were getting increasingly exposed to alternative data within um, King Street, within your hedge fund. And um, then let's, let's go forward to, to system two. How did, how did that come about? So I became, so first of all, like within, uh, even within King Street, I was, um, I ultimately ended up like starting the, the data team there. This was, the ask came from one of the, the founders of the, the fund who was interested in, in big data in the tech world and wanted me to look more into what we might be able to do within our, our own company. And, um, and then ultimately, I, as I started working on this and as we started in, incorporating these different kinds of data sets into our process, it went from, it was actually kind of funny because in the beginning, a lot of the, like some of the, the other senior partners within the, the firm kept referring to what I was doing as this Matei Science Fair project. And this was like, you know, like big public uh public meetings where people just talk about the stuff that they're working on and now to get introduced as like, hey, let's hear what your science fair project is up to this week. And which is, you know, like on, on one level, like highly annoying, but on the other level, I was like, you know, this is how a lot of innovation happens. Well, exactly. I mean, look at Google. They put a lot of money into their science fair project, haven't they? Like all of their science fair projects. It depends how you how you look at it. Exactly. I mean, I think like, yeah, no, I'm no Google, but at the same time, like, you know, science has given us a lot. So to be called a science project, I think it's not, not the end of the world. But it was, yeah, it was kind of funny because from... Um, it went from that to within less than a year when we started using things like 
credit card data to forecast revenues of different companies that the like the, the senior like portfolio manager of the of the fund started getting wind of what we were doing and started asking us if what we're doing was legal because our forecasts were like so spot on in terms of the revenues of these companies. So it went from like science fair project to like, you know, it's like barely legal within, yeah, within a year. And that just kind of went to show the, the, the potential here. And obviously like, you know, we can talk about the, the whole like legal and compliance aspect of it because that was, and it still is a, a very, uh, very large like concern. And we spent a lot of time making sure that what we are doing is, uh, is kosher, but it just went to show how you can have some really interesting successes with relatively minimal effort, especially in the beginning, when not that many funds were using this kind of stuff, especially not, not you know, fixed income funds um, that were in the in our competitive set. And then, yeah, and then ultimately, like it was, um, I just became sort of convinced that the future of investing was going to be data driven, and I also realized that to make that happen, I had to go off on my own. There was, uh, I was having a, a bit of a, you know, an existential quarter life crisis at the time when I was, uh, I was working on all these things. Now I had seen like the, the great success of the, the founders of, of our hedge fund and others, right. That had started these massive companies and they had, they have achieved some really fantastic things. And, and then I was, um, I was trying to, to figure out like, what's, what's my role in this? Can I, can I join them along for this ride? And I, I came across this, uh, this like proverb that that said basically, don't follow in your master's footsteps. Instead, seek what they sought. So it was more like it was less about literally following in their exact footsteps, and more let's just figure out like what their urge was in the beginning and try to if you wanted to copy something, copy that right. And and that's when I realized that I had to go. I mean, the theory being that we're always starting from a different point. So you want to find you want to follow the same urge, but from today exactly exactly it's also just like you know their urge was ultimately different than my urge and uh, their destination yeah, their destination was different and the path that they chose to, to get there was was very different than the path that i would have chosen even though it made sense for for me to follow in their footsteps for and i was i was at that place for for almost a decade and um and so it's not no it's not like i was uh, i was eagerly looking to, to jump ship when something something better came along it was more it was much more thought out and um and from my my background working on all these like risk models and thinking about broader like risk scenarios, I definitely tend to be more conservative. So I wanted to make sure that before I embarked on my own thing, that it made it made a lot of sense to do so. But yeah, I became convinced that the future was going to be data driven, and and you're stuck with this classic innovators dilemma where the existing place is successful, or in our case, was extremely successful, and it was using its you know its old school, traditional style of investing that had worked for, for decades. And, and here I come along saying, okay, we need to do something different. And, and I hands down, like agree that in the beginning, this, the, the, the process that we were proposing that I was like proposing with this was nowhere near as good as, as what we had. I mean, in fact, it was, it was kind of terrible. We had, we had a bunch of initial wins for sure. So there was definitely a spark there. But it was very hard to scale. Like there were all, all sorts of issues why it didn't make sense to just drop everything and and do this data driven investment approach. I can imagine that's very hard. I've I've just this this year I've been reading this book about um, uh, Renaissance Technologies and how that came about. It's a wonderful wonderful book. And um, but the difference there is that there the founder that was his vision. This this data driven investing and he 
as the founder was fighting against against the market almost because everyone else it was all about Bill Gross and all the you know all the big discretionary guys um and um but the difference in your case is it it wasn't the founder you were you were you were trying to trying to do this from halfway up the company which is a different it's a different battle i imagine yeah absolutely absolutely and no that's exactly right and it's there are tons of challenges i mean people like to this day ask me questions like oh what's the hardest thing about data and my answer is always like it's not the data it's the people like yes there's tons of hard issues with the data but the hardest part by far is the the culture and you're right like in some cases you have this top-down vision where the founder really wants to achieve something different and then yeah they're fighting against the market they're fighting against some naysayers within their own companies but then you more likely you have the opposite scenario where someone much more junior who's trying to bring about change and there's all these forces that are resistant to, to that change within the company so if i've and this and then by the way like you know that's, that's one of the reasons why i wanted to go off on my own because i wanted to minimize the politics minimize like yeah the data stuff is hard on its own the last thing i want to do is fight all these like internal battles for how we want to, to change this process and so I, I figure that by going out there and finding clients that agree with this kind of vision and that that want that are actively you know paying for this are it's going to be easier to, to get this done but the reality is like there's always this, there's always tons of challenges with uh, getting people to, to see things differently and there's challenges even in getting people to people who are not quantitative to understand and and safely use these quantitative tools so for example like one of the things that, that we've gone um, that, that it can be actually a very scary scenario is where you make a couple of forecasts and on, let's say, revenue of, of some company, and you end up being like spot on for a couple of quarters in a row, like spot on. And but your margins of error are significantly wider. So in essence, we essentially got lucky in, in nailing that that forecast as, as well as we did. And, and so what happens then is that the, the portfolio manager will develop this like false sense of confidence in the forecast that the next time you show them something, they might end up like going all in on, on this recommendation because after all, it's been spot on for the past couple of quarters. And, and then if, if that next quarter is not spot on or, you know, God forbid, it's even like significantly off or directionally off, then they're going to lose complete faith in this entire initiative. Like that is the easiest way to torpedo the initiative is you've built up this, this momentum and it gets to a point where people actually trust you. And then once they, they trust you, they put their guard down, then they get really hurt. Just like any like, like a romantic relationship where you've built all this stuff and then all of a sudden you do something and it's, uh, it completely derails all this, this history that you've built. And it, it's terrible. And the, the way, in our opinion, to solve this is to make sure that you communicate transparently from the beginning and make people understand that look like yes this is my forecast like yes we got this one quote unquote right but in fact here was our confidence range like we we could have very easily gotten it you know significantly off from what this one forecast showed and it's not an easy conversation right because you want when you get something right you want to pound your chest and be like oh i'm awesome look at all this great work i've, I've been doing and there's obviously an element that you want to be right like there is whenever you get something like so right you, you want to own it but you have to take a step back and just realize, okay, like if I'm in this for the long term, I have to to be humble about this. Just like if this, if I was wrong, what would I go to the PM with? I would go with, with all sorts of explanations as to why this is still within the, the range of forecast that we were making, and it's not like a terrible result. So you have to like, even in, in times of success, you have to just 
be the party pooper. I'd be like, yes, we, we got this one right. Here's all the things that went right, but here's all the stuff that could have gone wrong. And let's not forget that because next quarter, things could be, could be different. You're fortunate in this case because you're, you're dealing in statistics where you get things like a confidence interval. If you were, if you were uh, you know, a, a, fair, a, a soothsayer, um, then you wouldn't have any, any numbers with which to furnish. So you're, you're kind of, the process already produces your confidence interval. So it's already done for you. It's just a question of whether you show it to him or not. That, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. Now, that's that's when when people ask, like when I've had these kinds of conversations before, and they ask, "Well, okay, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to get comfortable with this?" Exactly to your point, Mark. It's that statistics. The beautiful thing about it is that you can quantify your uncertainty. So, like, yes, there is uncertainty, but we can quantify it, and we can learn from it, and we can figure out what we want to do over time is shrink those confidence intervals so that the the, the point forecast we are making is bound by a much tighter confidence band. So yeah, I mean, that's it. yeah, there are definitely things that, that we can do to improve and to continue to, to build people's confidence. Mate, it's been really interesting and uh, it's been good stuff, but we're on 24 minutes and we still don't know what you do. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is fair. And this, this goes to a broader point, which is like, I'm not a sales guy and, uh, it's, <laughs> and it really shows because, uh, yeah, when, when we get that like, <laughs> it's good to have talkers on this podcast. It's great. But, um, <laughs> what is it that you do? Yeah. So what, what we do at system two is we are, we become the data teams for a number of fundamental investors who don't have an in-house team, but really want to incorporate these kinds of data-driven techniques into their investment process. So what, what does that mean? I mean, we're, we're relatively unique in this because we are purposely not building a scalable company. We're in essence, sort of a, a consulting company, but we end up building, you know, we, we do code, everything we do is, is in code. And it's uh, and the idea is that we start with the investment questions that our clients have. And we partner with them to answer those questions. So we, we discuss with the analysts who cover these kinds of companies, what they're looking to, what they're afraid of, what are the, the catalysts that they're excited by. And then our team goes out and finds data and tries to answer those questions using evidence. So we, we find data. We then, most importantly, like once we get the data, we start working with it because all data is honestly like has, has terrible warts. Like all data is terrible. And once you start with, with that assumption, yeah, no, like it, it's true. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's just a question of like how terrible, where is it terrible? And most importantly, how can we improve it? So we spend uh, most of our time, once we get these kinds of data sets, is interrogating them, trying to figure out what are the biases. And, and then most importantly, how can we try to account for some of those biases in order to produce results that are much more... Um, much more representative of what's about to happen. So your clients are predominantly hedge funds and they are the type of hedge funds, perhaps someone like a King Street, but it's a hedge fund who doesn't necessarily do this. It wasn't created like um, uh, like Renaissance Technologies was in a, in a, as a, the point of the hedge fund is to do this stuff. It's a hedge fund who is thinking that they need more ac exposure to alternative data. They can bring you in as a kind of external consultant who can come in and, kind of do it for them and introduce them to it without them hiring the person themselves uh, internally. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and there are a number of advantages to working with us. And so first and, like, first and foremost is that we've done this a bunch of times, whereas even the most successful funds have people like that have been there you know, from the beginning, built out a fantastic team, but they've just done it once and they did it you know, five years ago. Whereas we've been doing it 
nonstop. Like we have clients that are starting every year. So we know what it's like to start a data team today versus I mean, it's very different than if you were to start a data team five years ago. And the other main advantage, and you mentioned this as well, is that when when these fundamental hedge funds are looking to start one of these initiatives, they're looking to hire someone. And typically they are just, you know, how <laughs> I think this has been one of the one of the, the funny ironies of working with hedge funds is that despite all the money they have is they are extremely, extremely cheap. And, you know, to the point where like there's, there's a funny anecdote from uh, from one of our friends who was in the elevator with the founder of his hedge fund. This guy is like a billionaire. And my friend was making small talk and they asked him, like, oh, what are you up to? And the founder says, oh, it's my wife's birthday. I'm going to go get her a birthday card. And my friend's like, oh, are you going to the, the papyrus store, which was like this, you know, car store literally in, in our building at the, the ground floor of our building. And the founder's like, no, that place is too expensive. I'm going to walk over to Dwayne Reed, which, by the way, was like three, four blocks away. So it's, it's this, this mentality of like you're always trying to look for, for value, whether you're buying a company, whether you're buying a data set or you're buying a birthday card. And, and I think that when it comes to starting these data initiatives, they are equally like on one hand, skeptical about it so they don't want to go all in they want to start small and for and it sort of makes rational sense that, okay i'm going to make my first hire just to start small on this the problem with making one hire is that this is frankly an impossible job for one person to do and the reason for that being is that this is an extremely fragmented industry just like honestly every other industry out there but people you know don't necessarily comprehend that there is this level of specialization so for example you wouldn't go to your eye doctor for heart surgery like it's just like something that wouldn't even make any sense so you you might hire some some person but that one person needs to be able to do everything from being a database administrator so ingesting all these data sets to figuring out how to then like um, engineer the data, how to model the data. They need to have expertise in math and, and stats to be able to build these models. They need to uh, to be able to visualize the the information, to present it to others. That communication is a massive, massive component of this. You want people to be able to negotiate contracts with your vendors. You want people who can have a conversation with anyone from like the most senior PM in the company all the way to, to the junior analysts that are working on, on these projects. And that is a huge, huge skill because like we, we talked about earlier, it's all about trust. So you might be the smartest PhD in the world that can, you know, solve all these like differential equations in their head and you present some analysis to a PM, but you don't explain it well. The PM will not trust you. They will like, like even in the examples that we, we gave earlier, we're like, yeah, you're right for some amount of time and then you're wrong, but it's still within the confidence interval. So from a from a purely mathematical standpoint, that PhD data scientist is completely right, but the PM thinks they're an idiot because they got something quote unquote wrong. So so to get all these yes, yeah, so to get all these skills within one person is quite frankly in, impossible to do. And what we is the felt, idea is oh sorry, go on, you got to say. No, I was just going to say, like, and that's the what we realized that that was the insight from our company's perspective, and from System Two's perspective, is that we can essentially hire those people that that entire diversity within System Two, but then we can repackage them into a full time equivalent person that has a, a bit of all these components and sell that. So you can get for the price of one data scientist, you can get access to all of these skills. That, that one data scientist, like that ideal unicorn data scientist should possess. So we're in essence, sure. you know, like these unicorns are extremely rare if they even exist. And we're essentially manufacturing unicorns and, and selling those to, to hedge funds. Excellent. And is the idea that a hedge fund would use you 
as a kind of as a crash with which to get themselves up to speed and if you do your job right then they're up and running and you can step out and you know they carry on by themselves or are you if you do your job right then they want you for the for the long run to be continuing doing this job Honestly, it's both. I mean, that's another thing that sets us apart is that we are extremely open and just open and transparent about what we do because, I mean, it's just how we are from a personality standpoint. And like, we believe that transparency is great. And it's also a good way to get funds and clients to trust us. So yeah, like we are, we're totally fine if um, we actually have have this in, in some of our contracts that if um, if the, the fund wants to, to fire us at some point, we'll give them the source code, we'll give them the stuff that they need to, to maintain the, the stuff, the analyses that we've built. Having said that, we have not had anyone um, do that. Everyone's because they, they get they enjoy working with us. We get so ingrained into their investment process that it makes it hard for people to to walk away. And I think that's you know it's not it's a testament to and it's not like we lock them in using all sorts of contracts. Like I mentioned, like we're super transparent. They can walk away and, and take everything if they want. It's it's more a testament to the fact that we're providing them with value, and they realize that it's not you know it's not it's it's not a core competency of theirs, and it's it's something that if they don't need to focus on, if they know that we're doing a good job and that we are handling all this stuff for them then great. Like they can focus on what they do best. We focus on what we do best and we have this fantastic symbiotic relationship. And this has been a model that's been around in other industries too, right? Like marketing, their marketing agencies have been around forever where it didn't make sense for companies to, to hire an entire marketing department in-house. They can just leverage this expertise in other industries. And we're, we're seeing this more broadly in other fields where it makes more sense, especially now we're all working from home. Like it really doesn't make much of a difference whether I'm an internal employee at one of these funds or whether I'm working at system two because we're equally responsive. And then, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we, we focus on as a company, right? We have to, we have to be extremely responsive to our clients. We make it feel as if we are part of their team. And, um, and then, yeah. And then, so clients don't really feel the need of to, to do this themselves. I hope you don't um, find this question too invasive, but does the, does the deal tend to be, uh, is the contract tend to be related to uh, the revenue you create or is it a flat fee? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. So we look, we are more than happy to put our money where our mouth is. And we actually have some of the, some contracts where we have upside in what we're providing. The reality is that most funds don't want to, it, it's hard to get funds to give up some of their PL, even if we are contributing to it. And so we, we saw this a, a couple of ways before that we've, and again, we're, we're relatively flexible with this because we are confident in what we can provide. And so, especially then this comes up more with smaller funds that might not have the, the, the cash to pay us our fees. And in, in those cases, what we've said to them is like, yeah, like, look, treat us like you would any other analyst on your team. And if at the end of the year, you like the work that we've done, like here's sort of the ballpark of compensation that we are expecting. And you can pay us some smaller percentage of that upfront. And at the end of the year, if you like the work that we've done, give us a discretionary bonus. We don't need to, to get fancy and getting it tied to any particular PL, because again, that, that becomes a sensitive subject for some of these funds. We leave it to them. Just like you give bonuses to, to your people, if you want to retain them, give them a good bonus. If you don't really want to keep them around, don't give them a bonus. And things just end up working uh, working out that way. So yeah, like and and we can also get into this uh, a bit as well. Like we we started through some of our our funds, especially on the private equity side, we started doing more work with corporates, so some of their portfolio companies. 
And, and some of the things we're doing there are actually like really fascinating where we're working with- Please, uh, please. that sounds really interesting. Yeah, like one of the things that we are, um, we're gonna, so okay, there's a couple of, of tools that we are starting to build. Both um, in this case, like two of them are sales tools. The idea being that we can help bring people, um, bring the, the sales team leads that are relevant. So the, the use case there, or like in this one particular case was that the salespeople were calling these firms. This is all like B2B stuff. So they're calling these firms and saying like, hey, do you, whatever, we provide some kind of service. Do you guys need it? And the, the response was either one of two things. One was like, oh, like, no, not really. I don't need, I don't need this right now. Or, oh, I wish you would have called me three weeks ago because I just ended up having to, um, to, to buy this and we, we went with someone else. And so the idea was like, if only we can tell the salespeople when the right time is to contact each of these firms, they, um, they feel like they, they significantly improve their, their win rate on these deals. And so, so it's the, it's the, it's the um, business equivalent of kind of ad tech. It's knowing that someone's just Googled a flight to Ibiza. So um, they are in the market for, for flights to Ibiza type thing. Is it, is it, it's, that's so exactly, it's yeah, that, that's, ex that's yeah. exactly right. And, uh, and yeah, like the, the two, um, the one, one of these companies works in the legal world. And so by using, getting data from lawsuits, we can figure out, um, we can figure out like when things are filed, which, you know, which participants are, are filing these cases. The other one is in the, the telemedicine world and it's something similar. It's like, yeah, like knowing when, uh, when, when things, when hospitals might need certain kinds of services. And so it could be anything like, it, but you're exactly right. Like just knowing that someone like a business is displaying a behavior exactly like that. I think your, your, your um, metaphor is extremely pertinent here because yeah, knowing that someone's interested in a vacation and then you can blast them with vacation ads is much more efficient than trying to guess that someone's in the market for a vacation. And so from the, from the corporate client perspective there, it's not necessarily what they're wanting from you. Is that your kind of knowledge of alternative data providers and, and data sets? Is that, is that, is that a, a value that you provide as well? Is that you've got a really good understanding of what's available? Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, and we, we work with a lot of um, with partners in this space as well. So, for example, like Eel Alpha is a fantastic company out there that, that specializes in in knowing what data products exist and we collaborate with them quite a bit for the, you know, the, the clients that subscribe to the, both of our companies where we can leverage Eagle Alpha's expertise in doing this. So yes, we have our own network. Like we've been in this space for a while, but it's, I, I do believe that there is kind of like our business specializes and makes it so that these funds don't have to build an in-house team. There are times when we can outsource some of our services, like doing data sourcing is, an entire job onto itself and having uh, having companies that specialize in that is, is extremely helpful. And so, yes, yeah, so we, we definitely partner with these kinds of firms. But yeah, the, the bigger the bigger concept here with corporates is that we start off, we typically start off with the investor, which is really interesting because we don't go knocking on, on companies' doors saying, hey, we can really help you out. And that honestly is more a function of, like I mentioned, I, I suck at sales and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going out there doing as many, I'm not doing any outreach, uh, even though I probably should be. But the, the cool thing about working with investors is that they obviously have an incentive to get their portfolio companies to do well. So what happens is that they will introduce us to one of their firms that, you know, they might be, might be struggling. And that's usually the case in the, on the private equity side where they're buying up these companies that they're hoping to turn around. Or it could just be like a, a growth company that they're trying to get to grow even faster or to 
um, to pick up like one of the interesting things, like we're, we're working with a, a jewelry company that's been growing a, a ton on in the online space. And they're like the funny thing is that they're growing so much they're dropping money all over the place and they're just not picking it up because it's not worth it because the growth is there. So we can more than pay for our services like many times over by just going in there and literally picking up the money that they're dropping left and right. And that on its own like pays for, for our services. So what it's- do mean, What do you mean by dropping money? Well, so, so for example, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting. Like the, and the reason why I really like working with corporates is because you know, at our core, we're investors and we like thinking about how what makes a successful company succeed. And, and so you can do that from the outside quite a bit. And that's what the majority of hedge fund analysts do, right? They're analyzing companies from, from the outside. But if you have the, the access to be on the inside of a company and see how, how they think about their operations and how they think about their growth and what matters to them, that really gives us a, a very good perspective about how we should be analyzing similar companies that we don't have the, the the access that we do with uh, with some of these uh, some of these portfolio companies. So, in the example of dropping money, what's happening there? So, this is uh, a company that's been growing at you know two to three hundred percent year over year. They're a startup, but they they've gotten to they're now at the, the growth equity phase, which is you know they they're profitable, they're they're grown, um, they have significant revenues. And, and yet, so for example, the, some of the things that um, they have this inbound online form where people are looking to buy, let's say, like engagement rings. So the people, customers typically spend about five minutes filling out the survey, answering tons of questions about like the type of ring that they want and so on and so forth. And then the, the company then, you know, receives the, the responses and one of their salespeople reaches out to, to the person who filled out the survey. But only about 13% of the people that they reach out to then respond back. So like 90% essentially of the people who bother to spend five minutes doing the survey are just like non-responsive afterwards, which is a shocking number. Um, and, and so the, the question is, okay, like are these emails... And, um, so, and, they forget, and so they forget about them. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, they move on to the next one because they don't, they don't care. Like they have, they're, they're so busy that they don't need to like chase these people that, that don't bother responding to them. So, and, and, and yet, like if you can increase and you know, it could be all sorts of things. It could be that the, the emails are going to spam. It could be that maybe you just need to email them a couple of times. And we know this for, from other sales tools that setting up sequences and following up with people is crucial. So if, yeah, if you try a couple of these different experiments, maybe you can get that response rate from 13% to like 20%. And you're literally doubling your revenue just by, by picking up some of these, this money that you're just letting go away because you don't care because there's always there are enough people that are responding to you that more than keeps the sales team busy so in your situation that jewelry company is obviously leaving that money on the table and you're picking it up is that literally that that 90 percent is that they don't care about it you know and you you've got you know you're you're in their data in a way and that you know they don't mind if you use it and so you can literally go and make the most of that other 90 percent yourself i mean how well how you no no we're, we're giving it back to them but it's it's more of a so the idea is like yeah we will build um so first of all when when it comes to the data we want to understand why something like this is happening and we do this by the way even on the on the hedge fund side when we're trying to analyze companies the majority of our clients are interested in the long-term trends in these businesses. So it's not just like, oh, what's going to happen this quarter, but what are the different, it's all sorts of things, like what are different product launches? How are they performing? Uh, you know, some company might be investing a lot in expanding to new geography. How's that going? Even though in the beginning, it's going to be an insignificant percentage of total revenues, if that's where the, the long-term growth of the company 
will come from. You want to understand how that how that works. And so, um, and so in the example of the, the jewelry company, the idea is that we we want to use data to understand like why is something like this happening? Like why are only thirteen percent of the people responding? So then we'll run all sorts of different experiments. We'll we'll analyze um, the the response rate. Like is it a matter of timing? Is it a matter of like I mentioned, maybe sending a couple of these these emails. There's also a huge component like the of the project that we're doing for them is around understanding their customer better because we have access to things like credit card data. So the cool thing about companies, the corporates is that they obviously they know they know about a hundred percent of the customers who shop there, right? You see all the transactions. In the alternative data credit card world, you might only see about, let's say, 1%, maybe 2% of all the transactions happening within a company. So from that, in that respect, it's like night and day. Like the corporates have much, much better data than we do on the, on the public side of it. Having said that, even that 1% to 2% data is, has been more than sufficient to, to find great correlations to a lot of these companies' revenues. But the cool thing about the, the credit card data that the companies themselves don't have is that within that credit card data for the the one percent or two percent of the people that that we see, we see their entire wallet share. We see how they're spending money across tons of different companies. So, for example, you know this this jewelry company might see that their their top clients, you know, like they might think someone's a, a top client for them because you know, let's say she spends I don't know whatever ten thousand dollars a year on jewelry, which is you know a, a large amount. But then we, we look and we find a similar cohort within the credit card data and we might find out that, hey, the people that you think are spending a lot with you, they're spending five times as much at other jewelry stores. So, you know, they, they might be your top clients, but in fact, you're only capturing like 20% of their jewelry spent. So you might want to go after these people more so than you might want to go after some other people that you are already capturing 100% of their jewelry spent. For sure. I think what we found is the overlap from the kind of investing end of alternative data into, into just the pure consulting data science teams within consultancies. I suspect your, your um, competitors in this space, in this advice that you're providing in the McKinsey's, et cetera, who are, who are using the, the same data science techniques, but their bread and butter is um, advising corporates on, they, on how to improve their businesses. So I think that's just where we've kind of wandered slightly into the Venn diagram overlap. Is that does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's a very interesting point. We are, we don't come head to head with the McKinsey's of the world, like quite frankly, not, not very frequently at all. Um, I mean, on, on one hand, like we're a tiny speck compared to what these guys do. But on the other hand, we have found a really good niche for ourselves in that we, the investors trust us. We speak their language. We come from their world. And so when it comes to actually, so I'll give an example. So one of the things that, that um, one of the projects we can we can talk about a bit is we worked on the the PG&E bankruptcy. This was a California utility that was uh, involved in all those wildfires. And uh, the relevant point here is that when we were looking to, to to get that project, we were competing with Palantir. And Palantir is obviously like a massive you know data company. And yep. we end up we end up beating them, and we end up getting that contract. And I think honestly, you know, there are a couple of reasons, but I think quite frankly, the, the biggest reason is that we were heavily recommended by one of the, the hedge funds that was an equity holder in PG&E to the point where it was really hard for the company not to choose to, to work with us because we were getting such a strong endorsement from one of these hedge funds that had worked with us before and they knew we can we can do the job. And then not to mention, like, we ended up like, yeah, we ended up getting that project and it was a, a very massive success for, for all of the parties involved. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was a much harder project. 
apart from the forest of California. Yes, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> given given all the, the the shitty stuff that's been going on there, uh, yes, like from a data perspective, it was uh, it, it was good. And but yeah, like the, the interesting thing was was that this these kinds of like some McKinsey, like you know, Palantir, all these massive companies, they are they are incentivized to scale and we are we are not and that's been our our biggest like for for us at least for right now we are much more value add than some of these big firms and not only that like we we also execute on the stuff that we're doing it's not like we just come in here and the final deliverable is a powerpoint presentation that says here are the things you need to change like we go in there and actually execute and the people that are executing on this are not like you know, like it's everyone like going back to what we discussed earlier about these hedge funds that are looking to incorporate data into their process. And, you know, maybe like one person believes in it throughout the organization, like at system Two, everybody like data is at our core. Everyone from the founder to like the most junior person lives and breathes data. Whereas someone like McKinsey might have, you know, a team, they hired some like, you know, junior programmers that might be able to, and I don't even know if they actually work on, on these kinds of uh, initiatives, but it's not like it's what the firm does. It's not like their whole bread and butter has been just going in and talking to management and observing some really interesting things there. For us, our bread and butter is going in, figuring out these kinds of hard business problems and solving them using data. So I think it's been, yeah, it's been an interesting differentiator. Um, and, and for now, like it's, yeah, it's enabled us to be relatively successful at what we do. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, let's bring it back to more traditional, sorry, definitely not traditional where the alternative data podcast, but more traditional alternative data. Um, which is so talking about more and perhaps the investors' perspective on it, and 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 um, because from this position of of privilege that you have of being able to advise various hedge funds on their approaches to alternative data, that's as I imagine quite a lot of firepower that you have behind you to be able to um, explore and see what works and what doesn't and and what what you like in alternative data sets and what you don't and 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 have a privileged position to see how it's evolving um so if we can just talk a little bit about about the kind of the types of data sets available and 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 what you're what you're doing around them i mean you started off by talking very much about about credit card transactions which is kind of where it's come from um where do you see the evolution of alternative data um obviously a lot has grown since um okay let's go straight to the present day <laughs> where do you see the most exciting data sets at the moment that, yeah that's a great question and you're right we do sit in this um in this relatively privileged seat where we are we we we, we buy a ton of data for for our clients and so we are a relatively like large buyer like last year we were we were told by one of the big credit card companies that we brought in the largest contract for them that year and and so we yeah we do have this cool position because we are working with uh with multiple clients of seeing data sets and seeing how different people use different kinds of data sets so in terms of what um what data i think is promising look credit card data was and it still remains one of the the backbones of this entire alternative data industry and it's uh it's it is the backbone for a very good reason which is that it's, it's been it's very versatile you can apply it across a decent number of names and it has been not just correlated to top line revenues but it also allows you to go deeper to understand like i mentioned earlier trends in you know wallet share we want to understand how so for example like some of the projects we're working on now is to understand how covid changed shopping behavior 
within individuals. So you might be, let's say like, you know, Mark was someone who used to go to the gym every multiple uh, days a week. But then with once the gym's closed, he stayed home and ended up buying a Peloton bike. And now the question is, once gyms do reopen, is Mark going to go back to the gym or is he going to continue using his Peloton? And you can, there's tons and tons of these, these kinds of examples where we want to understand whether the behavior has, is permanent or whether they're going to shift back to their previous behaviors. And you can look at this, you know, in aggregate, but in my opinion, it's much less accurate because if you can say, okay, like, yes, we know that Peloton has done really well in, in, with COVID, but the question is, okay, are they signing up people who were never members of a gym and this is a completely new audience or do they essentially steal market share from the gyms, which would then leave them open to a reversal in that market share once, uh, once gyms do reopen. So yeah, I think credit card data has been awesome. And within the, the credit card space, we have seen quite a bit of evolution. And just recently there was um, news that that second measure got bought by Bloomberg, which is, which is awesome. Um, known those guys for, for quite a bit. So I think it's, it's a fantastic sale there. You have other companies like, um, you know, obviously like Yodli is, uh, is coming to, to market more, more directly now with different kinds of data sets. They have an aggregate product, which is, uh, which is good. Then you have other companies like Consumer Edge that are competing with, um, with some of the more established players. And they, they claim that they have a differentiated data set. And, um, and yeah, like that's the, that's the question, isn't it? Differentiation. I mean, if, if credit card data has been around for the longest and there is the most people trying to do it, is there, is there a possibility that it's kind of used up in a way that it's been the most, where is that, that it's harder to find value in it? Well, so, so no, okay. Yeah. That, that's a great question. So a couple of things there. So one is that if you are, um, if you're a buyer of, of data, let's say you're looking to buy credit card data. You want to understand the the provenance of that data as much as possible, and a lot of these companies are are pretty tight lipped about where they get their data from. But you can ask questions that give you an indication of what that's like. So, for for example, like what Consumer Edge is claiming is that they're they claiming they, they're coming, they have a completely different set of users in their panel than in the panels of someone like let's say like an Earnest or or a Second Measure or or Yoli or, or what have you. And so, and the idea is that the way, if you think about how these companies um, collect their data, it's either through, there's a whole payments, and this is like the, actually the really interesting thing for my opinion, if you're, um, if you want to do data sourcing right, you need to to spend the time and analyze and understand these industries that can be extremely complex. So the payment industry is extremely complex. You have companies like like Yodi, for example, that are essentially the plumbing, the pipe for different kinds of applications that require financial data. So they see users that have connected uh, their their bank accounts essentially with some other kind of tool that let's say like summarizes their financial information. So they're they're the, the plumbing, they're the pipes. You can also get the data from the, the the banks themselves. You can get the data from credit card companies. So the Mastercard, for example, has a data product because they, they can see all the data that's uh, being spent on their credit cards. And each one of these things is going to have a limitation. So for example, if you can get the the data directly from the the banks themselves you so what, okay, what, what do you want like ideally you want to have a really clean um really clean metadata around this you want to know the retailer that was uh that was involved in this transaction 
So for a bunch of the, the companies out there, they infer the retailer by looking at the description on your credit card statement. So all they see is essentially your, the same thing you would see when you open up your, your credit card statement. And it might say, you know, like Apple store one, two, three, or it might just say like an Apple farm somewhere. So you have to have some logic that figures out, okay, like, is this Apple farm Apple the company or is it some like random like Apple farm that I went to for Apple picking? <laughs> And, and it versus like if someone gets it from some other source, like a bank, a bank might know more about that merchant. So they might already have that merchant pre-tagged. So you don't have to do that tagging yourself. So, so, the, you're, so you're saying that the transaction data has evolved like that you, or, uh, or there is different types of transaction data. And so you can extract different value from the different types. That, that's, that, that's exactly right. There are different types. And, and it's um, by understanding how the data is, is acquired, you can understand the limitations and the, the cool things about it. And so, yes, yeah, so there are cases or there might be cases where you might want to buy credit card data from two companies because they have two different panels, right? So now instead of seeing, let's say each one of them sees 2% of the, the credit card spending for a certain company. But if that 2% is a different 2%, then when you combine it, it's actually 4% of the total spending. If it's exactly the same, then you're only still seeing 2% of the company. So you have to like, there's a decent amount of work that goes into figuring out whether data sets can be additive or, or not. And we, yeah, so I think the credit card space has matured quite a bit, but there's still a lot of room for, for improvement there. Okay. And so that's transaction data. Um, and so what other, what other sources are you finding interesting at the moment in alternative data? So we find a lot of the stuff that that's interesting. So transaction data is interesting because it has relatively wide uh, applications across different companies. We also find interesting data within specific sectors that are topical at the moment. So for example, some of the stuff that, that we've been working on for, for some clients recently is understanding travel and when does travel pick back up? And when it does, is it going to pick back up equally for all the different companies involved or will there be certain shifts or things that are more long lasting? And there are data sets that can speak to that. I mean, there are great data sets that, that speak to hotel occupancy, data sets that speak to, to flights, data sets that speak to different kinds of, of companies within the, the travel space. So that's been, and then some of these data sets are not very widely used at all. I mean, that's, that's one question that we like to ask vendors when we start working with them is how many other clients they have within the hedge fund world to give us a sense of how crowded these trades would be. And then the... In the case of some of these uh, these travel guys, they're working with less than you know a dozen people, because partly because the the data might be you know expensive, and if you're not going to use, if you're only going to be use, if you're a typical long short hedge fund that might have like one or two investments in the travel space, it might not make sense for you to, to spend a couple of like I don't know a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars on on data that is only applicable to one name. And so there are interesting opportunities there for funds to pick up some of these more specific, like domain-specific data sets that are not very widely used. And typically the people using them are, like the funds using them are very different than what your fund might be doing with it. So in, in the space, yeah, I mentioned the, the 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 travel space i mean you have funds that focus on real estate for example and they might have a lodging component and they're yeah so yes they're they're big and they're big users of some of this data but their investment style is very different than yours and so you might still find alpha in these data sets if you're using it in conjunction with you know just your general like long short equity strategy and whereas most other long short equity funds that you're competing with are, are not using these kinds of data sets 
we've so seen- potentially so but it sounds like that approach rather than saying right i want to get into alternative data what's out there finding the biggest you know or the, the most accessible data sets or whatever and, and and trying to crunch them to see what you can get it sounds like this approach is much more having a question and saying right how can we be inventive how can we answer this and then you start going into the small niche provider who no one else has thought of in, in order to answer your specific question which no one else is trying to answer yeah that, that's absolutely right that's absolutely right so we we work with the vast majority pretty much like everybody we work with is a fundamental investor so they have these these opinions or these ideas and these questions that we start with and then we try to figure out how can we marry the data to it and as the space is evolving and this is kind of going back to what we were chatting about earlier where how is what's going on in the alternative data world today versus let's say five ten years ago i think one, one of the main differences today is that you have to be a little bit smarter about how you're using alternative data and not just focusing on the first order effects. The first order effects just being, you know, I have a specific question that I want to answer for and go find the data. A second order effect to that might be an understanding of who else, how crowded is this space? So who else is using this data set? You can ask, ask questions like, okay, well, okay, I, I'm using credit card data. So are a lot of other people. Are there, so one way that you can use, and by the way, there was um, funds like like Code 2, which is a vastly like, you know, successful Tiger Cub, and they had, um, they still have like a, a very good data science effort. It's been in the news recently. There was a Business Insider article, and uh, they, they talked about what they were using, how they were applying some of this data as part of a quantitative trading strategy. And it's, you know, typical stuff that a lot of, and this is another interesting thing too, is like when you get under the hood and understand what other people are doing, you realize that it it may or may not be as, uh, as different from what you yourself are trying to do with it. But what, what they were doing in that case was essentially looking at credit card data and figuring out how, when their forecast for a certain company diverged from consensus. So if consensus thinks that this company is going to be really, really terrible this quarter, but if you have a diverging opinion, you can end up making a bunch of money on it. And, and we've actually had uh, successes with uh, with this just in the recent, like we, we, this stuff happens quite a bit, especially in smaller cap names where you find a mismatch between what the sell side is expecting versus what the, the data is telling you. But what you can do to go a step beyond that is to say, okay, cool. Um, But now instead of just comparing my forecast to the sell side, I can also compare my forecast to what I would call like a naive buy side forecast, which means someone who's just buying an off the shelf data product and they're not doing any more work on top of it. What do they think is going on? So, so for example, and there, there was an example about this, um, about this recently where a, um, a, a, a this was on um, what, some, some consumer name. And in this consumer name, the, the credit card data in Q3 was showing a relatively, this is a company that sold um, like backpacks. So it was very exposed back to school with everything that was going on with COVID. The, um, the, the sell side was projecting them to be down like 20%. Credit card data had them more or less flat. And so, uh, and then the stock, once they reported the credit card data was right, the, the stock rose like 30%. It was, a, it was a great win. Fast forward to the next quarter, what ended up happening is within the, the credit card data, um, it was showing a significant, a significant miss that following quarter. But once you you spent some more time looking at it, what and what turned out was that the 
some credit card transaction descriptions had changed. And so there were a bunch of transactions that belonged to this company that were not classified as belonging to the company. So that's why there was, there was basically a missing chunk of transactions. So it looked like there was going to be a revenue miss when in fact that was not the case. It was just like the, it was an issue with processing. Data, data cleaning issue. Yeah. Exactly. And it was not necessarily the fault of the vendor because like the, the company changed the way they're tagging some of these things. This stuff always happens. And so the question is, like, you know, in those kinds of scenarios where the stock, if there are enough people that are trading off of the credit card data, the moment when the credit card data shows this massive drop, then the, the stock's going to respond. And we, we've seen tons of examples of this, right? Where and you can look at correlations between the stock price and the, the data, uh, the credit card data or any other kind of data to see how much of it is baked into that stock price. So you can, so yeah. for some stocks, it, it's baked in more than others. And so you can see, okay, like fine, for a stock where, where a certain data set is baked in a lot. And when you feel like you, that data, you feel that it is wrong and you figure out why it's wrong. So now you have a differentiated view, not just versus the sell side, but also against the other buy side that is just naively consuming the data without trying to, to go a step further. Or they just haven't found the mistake that you found. There's a there's that an alpha feel, opportunity. That, 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 that must feel great. No, I mean, <laughs> when, well, yeah. You can see, you can, you can, you can see all those idiots running off that cliff. Yeah. You saw the sign to, 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 to turn left beforehand, and you can just watch the market going, I know exactly why you guys did that. Yeah, I mean, like, great. yes, except that the, the reality is, like, you... <laughs> Most of the time, the market's right, and you're the idiot. So whenever you you find something like this, our first thought is like, "What did I what did I screw up?" And and especially when, when something looks too good to be true, that's when we end up spending even more time trying to figure out, okay, like how how did what are we missing? What's everyone else know that we don't know? And and so yeah, so it's never like, "Oh my god, yeah, wait, let's wait until I can't like just tapping our fingers, can't wait until the company reports so everyone else realizes how dumb they've been, and I'm I'm so right, I'm gonna make all this money." It's more like, holy shit, I hope I'm right. I hope I'm right. I hope I'm right. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's the, the reality with a lot of this stuff is that it's not, we don't have a crystal ball. None of it is so clear cut where it's like, oh yeah, someone else is making a massive mistake. It's more like, yes, we have evidence pointing to, pointing in our favor. And, and, and this goes back to like, and this I think is, is a big difference between how someone like me thinks about investing versus how a more traditional fundamental analyst thinks about investing. The, the whole job of an analyst, right, is to, to get conviction. They usually get this conviction by, you know, they do some kind of research. They accumulate pieces in their mosaic, and then their job is to pound the table and to be like, okay, this is a fantastic investment. I've done all my research. This is going to be awesome. Just wait and see. Whereas, like, someone who has a more quant and statistical background, that couldn't be farther from, like, our personality style. Like, for us, it's everything like, what what did I do wrong? How else, like, what am I missing? What else is... is can uh, can play a role in the the forecast for for this company, and it's just you know it, it's more to do with the nature of like understanding what statistics is, understanding probability, and being honest and open about the, the limitations within it. And if you work within those limitations, yes, you can still make money because we all know that in finance you can become a billionaire if you're right, you know, fifty five percent of the time. So um, so yes, I think that's another interesting tidbit here is that like yes, when we find these things, like we do get excited. There are certain uh, really cool implications of it. We can end up making a bunch of money from it. But at our core, we're always like, we have our, our risk manager hat on and we're thinking about, okay, what else did I miss? What other analysis can I run? And at some point, you obviously have to like, just, you know, give up and move on to the next thing because you can't just beat this this whole thing to death um, unless it is a big position. And this goes back into, you know, whole like risk management, how you allocate your, your time on each one of these things and how much time you want to devote to the 
gaining confidence in a name. But yeah, it's uh, it's something that is yeah, it's it's definitely a worry. Are, are there any examples that you can actually um, talk about of times where you've managed to find some really nice um, alpha? Where you know, obviously, if you can use it again, you don't want to say it. So, is there anything which is obsolete or out of date, or you wouldn't wouldn't be useful now or whatever from 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 the past as a nice example of when you have been able to really make a killing with with alternative data? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, this stuff happens happens all the time. I mean, um, so the the only names I can mention publicly were that that PG&E name that ended up being really um, really good case study for our clients. And then this, uh, this name about this, you know, this backpack retailer without really naming them, that was something that was, um, you know, that was something that was much more where that example happened, right? Like where we saw divergence versus consensus, our client ended up uh, going long that stock and they made 30% on, on earnings. There, there, there's been, you know, there's been countless of other examples where we've discovered some really niche kind of data set that is, really exciting for a certain industry. Like I, you know, I mentioned the, the hotel and lodging industry. We've done some really cool work there where we've, uh, we've really gotten alpha for, for our clients. Um, and then one of the things that, that is probably worth mentioning and what we want to do more of next year is come up with our own names that we can talk about. So we, we recently participated in an Eagle Alpha hackathon where we worked off of data and came up with uh, some case studies off of it. And it was, um, yeah, no, it was great because we we identified a couple of names that were looking really interesting to us, and then one of them, and I need to, to, we need to spend a little bit more time on on these names now. But one of the names that was kind of interesting was Denny's. Like Denny's is a restaurant chain in the U.S., and the relative to consensus, we were forecasting. And this was like way before. Um, this was yeah, like a, a few weeks ago. Like they report earnings in, in February. So we have some time to, to go before then, but it was looking like it was going to be a big miss. And partly that was partly because they had a lot of exposure to places like California where the, um, the lockdown has been more severe. And even, even though, like, as we were doing that research, we were checking some of the news that were coming out of California. And the, um, one of the things that was relevant to the companies that they had put in a um, essentially lockdown where people couldn't, there was a curfew. So you couldn't go to restaurants until like 11 a.m. And Denny's does breakfast. It's not, that's terrible for a company that does breakfast. So, you know, there could be things like this that might get missed if you're not spending, um, you know, if you're not spending a ton of time like researching or if you don't have access to the credit card data. And you did that. You did. You did that one with um, with ThinkNum, didn't you? And a couple of other companies in terms of their their alternative alternative ThinkNum were the were the yes. first provider I had on this podcast. So oh, awesome! Yeah, always have a close uh, a warm place in my heart. But um, yeah, I love Justin. Yeah, like we we, we email all the time. Um, yeah, no, I think I think they're great. So we worked with with their data, and it's really cool because right? they have. So ThinkNum has. So first, of all, I think Thinknum is like you know they're they're a very uh, popular company within the alternative data space, and I think they're they're actually great, and they're very reasonably priced as well for all the the content that they're putting out. So they what we used from them was the the store location scrapes, so getting a sense of where different stores are located throughout the the country, and you can get that, and you can overlay that with things like closures due to COVID to, and the length of the closure and so on and so forth. You can get a better understanding of the impact of something like COVID on stores that have different geographic exposures. So yeah, so we, we use that. Like we use, uh, there are a couple of other companies that, that we used in there 
uh, that were that were pretty yeah they were very helpful to, to that process. But yeah, there's a lot of examples where you can identify a mismatch between what everyone else is expecting versus what you're expecting the data. A lot of this is works better for small cap names because for a number of reasons, but mostly because they're not worthwhile for the big guys, the big hedge funds to invest in. And alternative data is not cheap by any means. So you have this interesting mismatch where the, the smaller cap names tend to be overinvested in by smaller, smaller investors that don't have the money for alternative data. So if you can use alternative data for these names, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool. And that was that was another point that was made in that Code Two Business Insider article where they had uh, they had challenge scaling their quant fund once they grew from like three hundred million to I forget how big they got, maybe close to a billion. Where at that point you just don't have as many opportunities to to, to trade these small cap names. So yeah, there, there's a lot of like the, the markets are it's, it's all one big poker game, right? It's not so much about can you do you know what's going to happen in the future, but it's more like Yes, we have to make good forecasts on what's going to happen with these companies. But more importantly, we have to know what other people know about those companies. Because if our forecast is fantastic, but so is everyone else's, then we have no alpha. So, and this stuff constantly changes. So if you can identify when some other market participant is making a mistake, or if you can identify a data set that you know is not really priced into the stock, you can have some really good advantages there. Interesting. Interesting. So it's partly an intelligence game. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, there's a, a job that hasn't been created of some kind of market and maybe it has been created some kind of market intelligence provider who will just tell people about each other. Well, that, that, so you're, we're talking about other kinds of data sets. I think that is one category of data sets that is, would be really interesting. And it is done right now, albeit in more qualitative ways where if you have a relationship with, you know, Goldman, whatever, some of the big banks that you're trading with, the job of traders, like historically, the job of human traders in the markets before a lot of this stuff is getting automated was they would call up their their buddies in different uh, on the sell side in different places and ask them, OK, like, wh what are you hearing? Why did my stock just drop a lot today? And then the bank might tell you, oh, there's like a big trade that was happening or like whatever, this or that. So keeping an eye on other market participants is, is huge. And there, there are a bunch of tools that you can use to do this. I mean, um, equity investors have to file with the SEC so you can check their 13F filings to see what kind of holdings they have. These things are, they only come out once a quarter. So for a fund that has a decent amount of, of uh, turnover in their portfolio, it's not that indicative, but it can still give you some indication as to what's going on. But some other companies are, to the extent that, you know, some of these, these bigger banks or some, some of the market makers would want to sell data, it would be really interesting. Right. So what would the data set consist of? Like one, one thing that would be cool that doesn't divulge too much, that doesn't really piss off their customers is to just give us a crowded factor and not just crowded in the sense of crowded within your competitive set. So if I want to know other hedge funds like me, how um, what are they invested in? So when you look to invest in a name like Denny's, I might know that, hey, like that is a very like everyone also got that same idea. And yes, everyone's already researching or they're, they're spending, uh, they're already buying into, into Denny's versus some other name that, that's less crowded. So yeah, things that give us an indication into the market participants and what they're doing is, yeah, would be extremely, extremely helpful. I, had a, I also had a company on a few weeks back called BMLL Technologies, and, and they basically package up all of the trading data from the previous day's trading and they make it accessible and, 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 and crunchable and then sell it as as one big package so it's it's essentially allowing 
hedge funds to analyze what is going on, who is who is buying and selling what, you know, try and understand. But then he was also saying that there's a gigantic industry, your algorithm, a large amount of what your trading algorithm is about is disguising what your trading algorithm is doing. <laughs> so then you need to try and decrypt what the trading algorithm is doing in order to understand what it's doing so it's it's a it's a whole world in itself yeah and that's been yeah that's another really really great point the market so first of all i have to establish that this is a poker game we are playing against people and in poker unlike in chess the big thing and there's there's a great book by annie duke that uh, it's called thinking in bets where she talks about this and what differentiates things like poker but in a lot of um I think what's uh, the, the psychological word for this is okay, like wicked environments versus nice environments. Like a wicked one is basically where you don't, the participants within that environment don't have access to all the information. So in the chess game, you can see all the moves in front of you. You know exactly what the position of the opponent is. There's, there's maximum transparency. And versus in a game like poker, we don't know the hand that the, the, your opponent has. So there's a lot of uncertainty that you don't have all the information that you need to make the decision that you want. And real world is this wicked environment where the vast majority of it is unknown to us. And so anything that can, that can give us an indication into what's going on there is extremely helpful. And the markets couldn't be a better example of this, where, you, yes, you do see certain things. You see the prices, you see the volumes. But by and large, you don't know who the people are on the other side of those trades. So you, it could be someone like I mentioned, like an algorithm. We didn't even talk at all about the, the, the quants in this space that are using some of this data, but they're trading using it very differently than, than how we are trading it. And, um, and, and so they might pick up on some like random. So one of the things that we came across was actually really interesting. A few years ago, we were analyzing some stock prices and one of these alternative data sets. And, um, and we had made, there was a mistake that we had made in the code. It was around the, the dates. And there's a ton of stuff like when it comes to dates, like the, the actually like filing dates or how the aggregation period that you should be using when you're looking at, at the revenue of a company. Anyway, long story short, there was a bug in our code. But when we ran it and we correlated the, the results of that credit card data, or I think it was credit card data, to what was um, what the stock price was doing, it was extremely correlated. And we can see these moves in, in the, the stock price when things were changing on the data side, like very micro level stuff. And, and we realized, we're like, what, what is going on here? And basically what that was is we got a small glimpse into the quant world where the whole game of these, these quants, like the, the two sigmas or the renaissance of the world, is they have people that are identifying patterns, short-term patterns in different kinds of data sets and then making trades, again, very short-term trades on, on the back of that. And so every once like we got a glimpse into this other world and it wasn't something like from a fundamental standpoint, it was a mistake, but this algorithm must have found that that it worked or that people were consistently making this, this mistake on the credit card data and they were trading against that mistake in order to capitalize a, a short-term advantage there. And so, yeah, so there's, there's an entire different world out there of how other people are, are using these kinds of data sets. And the more that companies can, can expose that or the more that becomes visible, the, the better of a job you can do in the, in the marketplace. Yeah, for sure. It's, yeah, no, it, it all makes sense. Matei, I have kept you talking for a very long time. This is by far the longest podcast I've ever done, and it's <laughs> been all fascinating. So I could, I could keep talking. We, you've, we've, we've grazed various subjects which we could go on and, and talk about as well. So um, you very kindly suggested that you might be willing to come back one day, which is incredibly, incredibly um, kind of you. Um, but, uh, but for now, thank you so much for your time. It's I really appreciated it, and um, and yeah, I, I wish you the best of luck with your with your all your endeavors. Yeah, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.